Intense fear paralyzed the limbs of that beautiful girl. She tried to scream, but a choking sensation comes over her and she cannot. The figure turns half round and the light falls upon the face. It's perfectly white, perfectly bloodless. The eyes look like polished tin. And the principal feature next to those dreadful eyes is the fearful looking teeth projecting like those of some wild animal, hideously, glaringly white and fang-like. It approaches the bed with a strange gliding movement. The glance of a serpent could not have produced a greater effect upon her than did those awful, metallic-looking eyes. With a sudden rush that could not be foreseen, with a strange, howling cry, the figure seized the long tresses of her hair, twinning them round his bony hands, then she screamed. Heaven granted her the power to scream. The bedclothes fell in a heap by the side of the bed. Her beautifully rounded limbs quivered with the agony of her soul. The glassy, horrible eyes of the figure ran over that angelic form with a hideous satisfaction, horrible profanation. He drags her head to the bed's edge. He forces it back by the long hair still entwined in his grasp. With a plunge, he seizes her neck in his fang-like teeth, a gush of blood, and a hideous, sucking noise follows. The girl has swooned, and the vampire is at his hideous repast. That was Maddie Goff reading Varney the Vampire from 1845. Welcome. This is Autumn Door. I'll be your host today for Vampire's First Blood, a Halloween special. We will be reading and talking about the origin stories of vampire lore before Bram Stoker's famous Count Dracula. We're lucky enough to have the author of the anthologies, Vampire's First Blood, James Golden. Welcome, James. Thank you, Autumn. Thank you very much. What got you interested in these stories? There was something... Very interesting about vampires back when I was, you know, coming home from school to watch Barnabas Collins on Dark Shadows. <laughs> and uh, I read some articles about how vampires came to be. Because interestingly, as opposed to things like ghosts or werewolves, vampires are a comparatively recent creature. The, the word vampire was not known in English until 1732, when it appeared in uh, newspaper reports of things that had happened in the late 1720s in what's now Serbia, of, of actual vampires being dug up and you know staked through the heart. That was probably some sort of plague-related phenomenon at the time. And so I started looking at 18th and 19th century poems and stories of vampires, and you see how the vampire gradually turned from like a peasant who might attack your livestock as well as yourself mm -hmm. into the aristocrat, which is what we now assume that a vampire is, is going to be and which Bram Stoker did in Dracula. That's fascinating. So the story that we just heard is Varney the Vampire? Varney the Vampire, which was a penny dreadful, a serialized magazine story in England from 1845 to 1847. That's the first chapter. The full saga is as long as all four Twilight books put together. <laughs> but what you see with Varney is, first of all, he is, uh, as you later find out, Sir Francis Varney. So he is... He's he, a lord. He's an aristocrat. Yep. Um, this is the first vampire to actually be described as having fangs. Mm. Um, previous vampires had bitten, but now, like, the fangs, which become familiar, are there. The glance of a serpent, as was read, the hypnotic power. Hypnosis had only begun to be a thing in the 1840s, but that was something that would become very, very important in the whole vampire notion, that uh, the vampire could control your will. And finally, of course, you know, it ends with something that is essentially a rape. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really brutal, awful rape. And she's paralyzed, he's, and he takes her. He's dragging her by the hair yeah. to the bed. Right. And you have this you know, early Victorian thing. On the one hand, it's horrible. But on the other hand, uh, you know, as, as Maddie uh, Goff, our actress Wonderful here, actress. Thank you, Maddie was Goff. saying, you know, her beautifully rounded limbs quivered with the agony of her soul, which is both horrible and yet also it's porny. Yeah, yeah. it is definitely porny. You know? And because I think in, in, in a lot of ways, the vampire, unfortunately, you know, for those of us who liked going back to Barnabas Collins, is kind of a rape fantasy. Yeah, yeah. And it can be a homoerotic fantasy, too, I believe. 
I'm sure you're right. The homoerotic aspect is in our next story. I would like to introduce Joey Rich, who is our other actor. Hello. And uh, one quick introduction to this. This is from a poem that predates Varney. This is uh, from 1812, an English poem by a guy named uh, John Stagg, who was blind. Wow, that's Um, interesting. And it takes place, although written in English, at the time vampires were kind of thought to have come from somewhere in Eastern Europe. So you have these two people, Gertrude and Herman, and the vampire Sigismund. So clearly this is a Germanic country. And uh, the wife has noticed that her husband doesn't look so good. (laughs) (laughs) So the vampire, a tale from... 1819. That's different. That's Polidori. They're all called the vampire. They're all called the vampire. <laughs> Not to be confused with the vampire. <laughs> now Maddie and Joey Rich will read excerpts from The Vampire from 1812. Why looks my lord so deadly pale? Why fades the crimson from his cheek? What can my dearest husband ail? Thy heartfelt cares, O Herman, speak! Young Sigismund, my dear friend, but lately he resigned his breath. With others I did him attend unto the silent house of death. From the drear mansion of the tomb, from the low regions of the dead, the ghost of Sigismund doth roam, and dreadful haunts me in my bed. There vested in infernal guise, by means to me not understood, close to my side the goblin lies, and drinks away my vital blood. But, O my Gertrude, dearest wife, the keenest pangs hath last remained. When dead, I too shall seek thy life. Thy blood by Herman shall be drained. But to avoid this horrid fate, soon as I am dead and laid in earth, drive through my corpse a javelin straight. This shall prevent my coming forth. Just at that moment Gertrude drew from neath her cloak the hidden light, when dreadful she beheld in view the shade of Sigismund, sad sight. His jaws cadaverous were besmeared with clotted carnage o'er and o'er, and all his horrid hole appeared, distant and filled with human gore. With hideous scowl the spectre fled and shrieked aloud, then swooned away. The hapless Herman in his bed all pale a lifeless body lay. Next day in council was decreed, urged at the instance of the state, that shuddering nature should be freed from pests like these ere twas too late. The choir then burst the funeral dome where Sigismund was lately laid, and found him, though within the tomb, still warm as life and undecayed. The corpse of Herman they contrived to the same sepulchre to take, and through both carcasses they drive, deep in earth a sharpened stake. By this was finished their career, through this no longer they can roam, from them their friends have not to fear, both quiet keep the slumbering tomb. That is such a sexy story. What I was say? feeling the same thing. Sexy story. You know what's interesting? I don't, I don't know if it's because we have all this history of vampires, their seductiveness, their ability to have control over you, that I'm putting it on the story, but it's also in a poem form, so it's a little more poetic, and yeah. I felt like, I don't know why I'm romanticizing, like, death and drinking blood. <laughs> I know, but I think... Go ahead, James. Well, it starts with the husband saying... I'm having some trouble, uh, wife. I've, uh, my, my old friend is in my bed uh, while you don't notice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it ends up with him and Sigismund staked together. I mean, they're like a, a sandwich yeah. in the grave. And I'm wondering, what is that? Is <laughs> that is supposed it? to be shameful or is that somehow like a, a, a fantasy that they'll be together forever? Yes, in some way, uh, in the, the homoerotic nature of it is. And that's always how the vampire story has to end, right? So maybe they get to be risen to normalcy in the vampire world because they're getting stakes through the heart. Yeah, but it's interesting because Herman, Herman. Is, has been already to Sigismund's funeral. So he's been there. So interesting to think that body would have to be exhumed and his dead body put in there and then a stake put through both of them together. So it does have like... 
an ex, you know an extra effort just to make that happen. It yes. is an odd choice for, by the author. I would say also that this has to, to do with the gender fluidity in the vampire stories. There's mm. so much room for them to play with mm-hmm. sexuality. There's this human light and darkness that they're playing with, and the darkness being exercised through art. There's this homoerotic fantasy. Does it always have to do with sex, the vampire story, James? It depends on who you talk to. I don't think it always has to do with it. I think in some very basic cases, it's just a a case of, I'm going to be murdered. You know, but there is very frequently, you can easily read a sexual aspect into this. And if you think of the classic tale of, you know, the woman's in bed, vampire comes in, and she welcomes him. Later on in the movies, you know, once the hypnosis is firmly placed, it's like, you don't resist me because you don't want to resist me. Right, because this we is... couldn't really promote the idea of the rape fantasy. I well, and, and now I think you see the vampire is like the ideal boyfriend. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the sexy, yeah. hot boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, James, because when you were talking about before uh, vampires being aristocrats and and having the suave nature about them, uh, describing them almost like monsters, how you said they would kill sheep. And that would remove the sexual aspect out of it. That would just be about the horror of being stalked by a monster and being bitten and drained. In these stories where it's like the bite almost feels like sexual. That's the penetration in the neck, right? Mm. And that's why I think for an audience, it was important to have the vampire eventually become an aristocrat. Because when an aristocrat does this stuff, it's kind of sexy. As opposed to... (laughs) Hello, I am, uh, you know me, I am Igor from down the road. I would very much like to, you know, come in and, yeah, but no, please. Whereas it's, so, hello, oh, wow, right. oh, you've got like lace on your collar. Right, so That's, there is an evolution and that happens. And, it, and like even now, if you have someone who is a doctor or a lawyer or something and they're sort of brooding about something, it can be construed as sexy. Whereas if the gas station attendant is doing that, it's creepy. And mm-hmm. you call the cops immediately. Right. And so the I'm not saying that, that it's a good thing that the vampire became, you know, aristocratized. One thing, though, before we get to the next one, which will be the first real aristocratic vampire, one of the advantages of having an aristocratic vampire is, as you see, Herman is saying, by means to me not understood, I don't know how he got here. Whereas an aristocrat is buried in a crypt above ground. So then mm-hmm. all you have to do is open the coffin lid. Just makes it easier for the writers, those lazy It makes writers. it immensely easier because otherwise you have to somehow figure, okay, how do you dig out of six feet of dirt without disturbing anything and then get back in? Definitely not sexy. Right. This is so interesting because it also talks about the history and also classism is the big divide between the lords and the peasants. Yes. Uh, but even today, you, you can't separate class from sex. No. Either. Some legitimacy there. The Vampire Tale, very briefly, in 1816, Lord Byron, the poet and, you know, and sexual athlete, <laughs> had a bunch of friends over to his house, and he said, well, I'll write a ghost story. This ended up with Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein. Byron himself tried to write a vampire story and gave it up after just a few pages. His young physician, Dr. John Polidori, who very much wanted to be admitted into the circle and respected, but who never was, took the basic outline of that and then turned it into this 8,000-word story, which we've severely cut down. You're welcome. Yes. (laughs) And this is the first time that you have a vampire who is, from the get-go, an aristocrat, and also, interestingly, is not from another country. You know, you don't know where Lord Ruthven comes from, but he seems to be English. The story was published in 1819, and it was originally thought to be by Byron himself, either through a mistake or a deliberate lie by the publisher. And so for over 100 years, it was often included in Byron's works. And Polidori was trying to say, no, but actually, uh, I, I wrote it, and he, you know... It didn't, uh, it didn't really well, work. We are giving him full credit today. We're giving him full credit today. So it begins with the introduction of uh, Lord Ruthven and a young man who would very much like to be his pal, just for some reason, Aubrey. Joey will be reading The Vampire, A Tale, from 1819. It happened that in the midst of the dissipations attendant upon London winter, 
there appeared at various parties of the leaders of the town a nobleman, more remarkable for his singularities than his rank. He gazed upon the mirth around him, as if he could not participate therein. Apparently, the light laughter of the fair only attracted his attention that he might, by a look, quell it, and throw fear into those breasts where thoughtlessness reigned. In spite of the deadly hue of his face, his form and outline were beautiful. Many of the female hunters, after notoriety, attempted to win his attentions and gain at least some marks of what they might term affection. About the same time, there came to London a young gentleman of the name of Aubrey. He believed all to sympathize with virtue, and thought that vice was thrown in by providence merely for the picturesque effect of the scene as we see in romances. He soon formed this object into the hero of a romance and became acquainted with him. He gradually learnt that Lord Ruffin was about to travel, and Aubrey immediately mentioning his intentions to Lord Ruffin, was surprised to receive from him a proposal to join him. Each day he hoped his friend would give him some opportunity of speaking frankly and openly to him. However, this never occurred. Lord Ruffin in his carriage, and amidst the various wild and rich scenes of nature, was always the same. His eye spoke less than his lip. You see the question, again, in terms of the, the gender fluidity. Why exactly is Aubrey so fascinated in Lord Ruthven? Yeah, well, he's fascinating yeah, to, yeah. to everyone. Aubrey soon found himself at Athens. Under the same roof as himself existed a being so beautiful and delicate that she might have formed the model of a painter, the light step of Ianthe often accompanied Aubrey in his search after antiquities. Whilst he drew those remains, she would stand by and tell him all the supernatural tales of her nurse. She told him the tale of the living vampire feeding upon the life of a lovely female to prolong his existence for the ensuing months. Ianthe detailed to him the traditional appearance of these monsters and his horror was increased by hearing the pretty accurate description of Lord Ruffin. Aubrey began to attach himself more and more to Ianthe, and while he ridiculed the idea of a young man of English habits marrying an uneducated Greek girl, still he found himself more and more attached to the almost fairy form before him. Now, we have, of course, uh, some uh, bad news coming up for Aubrey. One day... In Greece, he's going on a trip. He gets lost in the woods. He hears a woman screaming in a hut. It's totally black. He goes in. He's almost killed in the dark, almost strangled by somebody who speaks English, has superhuman strength, and who runs away when some peasants arrive with torches. And then, in the torchlight, what does Aubrey see but his love, Ianthe, lying there dead? There was no color upon her cheek, not even upon her lip. Upon her neck and breast was blood, and upon her throat were the marks of teeth, having opened the vein. To this, the men pointed, crying simultaneously, struck with horror, A vampire! A vampire! This is the first classic description of the dead woman vampire victim. There she is, it's the marks in the neck, and she's pale and all that. First time. Lord Ruthven, upon hearing of the state of Aubrey, became his constant attendant. His lordship seemed quite changed. He no longer appeared that apathetic being who had so astonished Aubrey, but as soon as his convalescence began to be rapid, he again gradually retired into the same state of mind, and Aubrey perceived no difference from the former man, except that at times he was surprised to meet his gaze fixed intently upon him, with a smile of malicious exultation playing upon his lips. He knew not why, but this smile haunted him. On one occasion, they travelled with only a few guards, more to serve as guides than as a defence. Upon entering, however, a narrow defile, they were startled by the whistling of bullets close to their head, and by the echoed report of several guns. Lord Ruthven received a shot in the shoulder, which brought him to the ground. Aubrey was soon surprised by seeing the robbers' faces around him. By promises of great reward, Aubrey soon induced them to convey his wounded friend to a neighbouring cabin. Lord Ruthven's strength rapidly decreased, and death seemed advancing with hasty steps. 
Aubrey was induced to offer his assistance with more than usual earnestness. Swear, cried the dying man, raising himself with exultant violence. Swear by your soul, by all your nature fears. Swear that for a year and a day you will not impart your knowledge of my crimes or death to any living being in any way. Whatever may happen, or whatever you may see, his eyes seemed bursting from their sockets. I swear, said Aubrey. He sunk, laughing upon his pillow, and breathed no more. Aubrey retired to rest, but did not sleep. In the morning, he was about to enter the hovel in which he had left the corpse, when a robber met him and informed him that it was no longer there. Having been conveyed by himself and comrades to the pinnacle of a neighbouring mount, according to a promise they had given his lordship, that it should be exposed to the first cold rays of the moon that rose after his death. Aubrey, determined to go and bury it upon the spot where it laid, found no trace of either the corpse or the clothes. Weary of a country in which he had met with such terrible misfortunes, he resolved to leave it. He arrived at Calais, a breeze which seemed obedient to his will, soon wafted him to the English shores. Aubrey is not very happy in England for very long because he finds out at a party that Lord Ruthven is still alive. And then he learns that Lord Ruthven is about to marry Aubrey's sister. And of course, the year and the day have not gone by. And so he's still bound by his oath not to say anything about what happened over in Greece. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> Aubrey became almost distracted. The more he thought, the more he was bewildered. Was he then to allow this monster to roam, bearing ruin upon his breath amidst all he held dear? But even if he were to break his oath, who would believe him? He thought of employing his own hand to free the world from such a wretch, but death, he remembered, had been already mocked. Aubrey grew almost frantic and in a moment found himself in the apartment where all were nearly assembled. Lord Ruthven was the first to perceive him. He immediately approached, and taking his arm by force, hurried him from the room, where on the staircase, Lord Ruthven whispered in his ear, Remember your oath, and know, if not my bride today, your sister is dishonoured. Women are frail. So saying, he pushed him towards his attendants. Aubrey could no longer support himself. His rage, not finding vent, had broken a blood vessel. The marriage was solemnized, and the bride and the bridegroom left London. Aubrey's weakness increased. He desired his sister's guardians might be called, and when the midnight hour had struck, he related composedly what the reader has perused. He died immediately after. The guardians hastened to protect Miss Aubrey, but when they arrived, it was too late. Lord Ruthven had disappeared, and Aubrey's sister had glutted the thirst of a vampire. The end. The vampire gets away with it, scot-free. Everybody's destroyed, and Lord Ruthven goes off to the devil knows what. <laughs> now, that's unusual, right? Usually they get the stake in the heart. Right. That's extremely unusual. I think one of the things that so shocked readers and made it so popular, and it also gave uh, an impetus, I think, for uh, people to do sequels that were unauthorized. Mm -hmm. Lord Ruthven was the early 19th century version of Dracula. Everybody knew who he was from, from 1819 to about 1850-something. There were operas done about this in Germany. There was a French play in 1820 that became an English melodrama, which was totally changed. It was set in the Scottish Isles, and Lord Ruthven at the end was taken down to hell. Interestingly, through a trap door that had been invented, which then became known as the vampire. Oh. Yeah. And, you know, so Lord Ruthven, one of the things that made him especially interesting was the notion of coming back from death. And in all of these stories, even in Varney, which came, you know, 20 odd years later, but also in the adaptations, the key scene was, don't tell anybody that I'm dying. 
out in the moonlight, the moonlight revives the vampire, and then you shows up, and the one person who knows is staggered, and the vampire says, remember your oath. And that was always the, the scene that was repeated over and over again. That was the meme. Yeah, yeah that was <laughs> the meme of its time. That was the meme of its time. <laughs> and that was originally part of Byron's story. We know that because, although he didn't finish his fragment where there is no actual vampire in it, but Polidori wrote saying that his lordship's idea was that these two people go to Greece, the aristocrat dies, and then comes back and makes love to the narrator's sister. And of course, because everyone thought that this was a Roman clay about Byron, it became incredibly popular. The German poet Goethe thought that this was Byron's best work. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, uh, E.T.A. Hoffman, who was uh, another writer of fantasy and horror stories, absolutely thought that Byron had written this. Very Did Byron let people think that also? He Did hated he... this. He didn't. Oh. Oh. So he corrected them when he... they thought that he had written this Yes. Story? Oh, and he was writing to the publisher saying, take my name off this. Oh. I did not write it. And I had nothing to do with this. Ironically, Polidori got very little money from any of this because everyone was was ripping him off and so he finally decided I'm going to give all this up and I'm going to join I'm going to join a monastery ooh but the the head of the monastery said oh I know you wrote the vampire we're not letting anyone like you in uh, here oh my gosh and he got rejected he got rejected the he ended one up, person and, who knew right and he ended up uh, committing suicide at 25 oh that's awful wow. poor yeah. guy poor guy yeah. it's interesting yeah. I was going to ask you if Dr. John Polidori if there was ever any research done about him possibly being homosexual it's so totally unclear yeah there is no evidence one thing that's interesting is when he was describing at one point how he wrote this, he said, well, you know, I wrote this in two or three mornings with a lady by my side. And I thought, well, that's a very interesting thing that you have to put out there. Wow. Uh, that's interesting. That's well, very interesting. My guess is that he was not aware of any sexual attraction to Byron. And Byron became the essential mold for all male vampires through Lestat and... You know, everything else. He's the tall, dark, brooding aristocrat. Even uh, Darcy, too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is about right, power and money. A lot of it is about power and money. Yes. Right. Because, of course, you know, if you're a lord, you have power, you have money. Lord Ruthven would have been doing almost all of this anyway, even if he weren't a vampire. I think that's one of the things that's interesting about the male vampire, that he's a rapacious guy who's doing terrible things and treats people abominably. It's just that as a vampire, you can't kill him. My gosh. You know, Talk about a fantasy. Although, if you're talking about the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, I mean, think of it that way. It's like, we don't need aristocrats anymore, but we can't get rid of them. <laughs> and they're still exercising hidden power. Wow. It's interesting to me how the homoerotic attraction plays out that he, it doesn't happen between the two gentlemen. But he goes after the sister, which is probably not only the closest in blood, but closest in features and actions. And I think it's interesting how, in a way, it's like he's responsible for both of their deaths, even though yes. the women are the ones that always suffer the more violent death, right? Like she glutted his thirst for blood and the guy just dies tragically. But it still feels like it's because of the vampire because of Lord Ruthven making him that, drain his own blood, I guess. Right. You may be wondering, where are all the crosses? Where's the holy water? Where's all the Catholic anti-vampire uh. stuff? That came pretty late in the game. And a lot of that really came in with Dracula, although there are some earlier examples of this. One is from a poem we're going to hear next called The Vampire Bride from 1833, by a poet named Henry Thomas Little, or Liddell. He was a member of Parliament, and interestingly, he was very interested in helping English Catholics, who in the 1830s were you know, trying to push for, for more rights. And this poem is clearly set in some Catholic country. What the story is, is you have a young man who is at his wedding banquet, is not taking things quite as seriously as you should at your wedding, and as sort of a joke, he puts his wedding ring, which in this case is a sapphire ring, it's not a gold band, onto the finger of 
a statue of a nude woman, nude except for a zone or sort of wrapping around her with mysterious markings on it. The statue then turns into a vampire. So somehow the statue is turning into a vampire who is invisibly sucking his blood instead of letting him get to his bride. After three nights of this, the bride, the real bride, who is still a virgin, is sick and tired of this. She has a dream, essentially, in which the Virgin Mary gives her superpowers. And then she says, I am going to take care of this. Husband is, you know, helpless. The various priests cannot do anything. And she goes into the big church vampire hunting. This is the virgin. This is the virgin bride going after the vampire who is taking her guy. That's interesting because the vampire is female and so is the hunter. In yes. This story. Plus, she has a dream of the Virgin Mary. So you've got like oh. this, this triangle, triangle of female, of female. Power. That is very Ooh, interesting. I love it. How Da Vinci Code. <laughs> Maddie will be reading an excerpt from The Vampire Bride, 1833. Five yards underground, a coffin they found of strange and wanton shape. And the cold, wet clay was red where it lay, and the coffin lid did gape. They lifted the lid, and the shroud they undid, but what they saw underneath, the horrible sight that congealed them quite, I almost fear to breathe. Beneath a shroud stained and spotted with blood, a female naked lay. On her clinched hand shone a sapphire stone, in her corpse there was no decay. Her eyes did stare with a demon glare, a girdle bound her waist, and words unknown on the charmed zone mysteriously were traced. Her veins a curse seemed ready to burst, she was gorged with an infernal food, and the vampire mouth foamed with crimson froth, her very pores oozed blood. The laborer shrunk and fainting sunk back from the hideous sight. And the priest fled the church and rushed out the porch. They almost went mad with affright. But the virgin bride in her maiden pride, in her love and virtue brave, a crucifix pressed to her noble breast and sprung into the grave. That which was given in the sight of heaven I bid thee, fiend, restore. That ring I claim in his awful name, whom the powers of hell adore. By his holy shrine I bid thee resign, demon thy right forever. Whom God doth join at his sacred shrine, presume not thou to sever. The vampire shook at the words she spoke. In an instant the palm opened wide. From its finger she drew the sapphire blue as drops from the icicle glide. When the zone they unlaced from around its waist, its bright eyes with fury gleamed. When they thrust a dart through its swollen heart, it convulsively shivered and screamed. And the red blood thereout did gush and did spout till it sprinkled the chancel roof. So vehement it sprung, that no fountain e'er flung, with like force its waters aloof. But the carcass foul of the carrion ghoul grew flaccid and meagre and thin, as a huge bladder blown when the air is gone, shrivels up into wrinkled skin. From the loathing shrine of St. Peter divine, they cast the vampire forth. But none could declare how it ever came there in consecrated earth. That is a kind of terrifying. A kind of terrifying and yet just so blood and thunder and powerful. Yes, it hits you like a brick. I'm wondering if this part where it sounds like kind of an anti-oath, mm-hmm. that which was given in the sight of heaven, I bid thee foul restore. Fiend. Okay, what she's saying is that ring which was given at the wedding and, you know, with this ring I thee wed, give that back. I charge you in the name of, you know, Christ, whom, you know, even the powers of hell. Yeah, uh, it you know, seemed adore. like there's just something in the rhythm of it that sounded like I give you this ring. I take this yes, ring. Yes, it's the anti version of that. She's totally claiming this is my wedding and yeah. <laughs> you are not doing this. And this is a powerful woman. 
She's a virgin, but she's not weak. She's going to take her power back. And the priests are totally powerless against this. They ran. Right? The, 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 all the male priests can't do a thing against the power of this female vampire, and it's only the bride who can actually who do it. Who reclaims her... Her right. Yeah, her right, yeah. yes. I love the use of awful. I that saw ring that I claim, claim in, in his awful name. Awful awe. as in we're in awe. Similar, it's an upward awful. Right, it's similar to like the terrible swift sword. And it's also for the vampire, it would be awful in the other sense. And for her, it's awful in right. the awe, A-W-E That's right. sense. That's a double meaning, yeah. Also, this is one of the very first cases of a coffin. So you don't have to dig into the mm-hmm. earth. You go down under the church and there is a coffin. So all you have to do... Although, you know, then the bride, instead of instead of stabbing her, just stabbing her, like, leaps in, you know, with the crucifix, saying, okay, before we stab you, give me that, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, you do do the stabbing, and there's this fountain of blood going up to the roof of the church. Those are, those are high. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, they're down in the basement, so it's like... Yeah. That's really... We're talking really gothic. Very, very gothic. She's been storing a lot of blood. This is like Carrie on another level. She's gorged. Yeah. (laughs) So 1836, we now go on to, and we go across the channel to France where they have a very different attitude towards female vampires. The female vampire on the continent, especially in the first part of the 19th century, was treated with a lot more understanding perhaps so what you have here is an excerpt from claremond or the dead in love by uh, theophile gautier and a translation by uh, lafcadio hearn from 1910 this is a story of an old priest remembering 40 years back when he was first made a priest and he caught the eye of this beautiful courtesan claremond who it turns out has been dead for 150 years but she brings him into her palace and they're having just these wonderful, you know, nights together. And he wonders, like, exactly, how is it? Like, what are you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. And in this next section, we basically find out. And Claremond is at no point presented as a monster. It really seems as though she is genuinely in love with this young priest. She just doesn't want him to be a priest because he's wasting his life when he could be her boyfriend. Forever. Forever. (laughs) Or at least a long time. (laughs) As we find out in this uh, brief section, she's beginning to have some bad days and bad weeks, and she's feeling ill. And what's she going to do? Oh, she needs a little taste. Maybe. Joey's going to read Claremont, or The Dead in Love. For some time, the health of Claremont had not been so good as usual. Her complexion grew paler day by day. The physicians who were summoned could not comprehend the nature of her malady and knew not how to treat it. Her paleness nevertheless visibly increased, and she became colder and colder. I grieved with anguish unspeakable to behold her thus slowly perishing, and she, touched by my agony, smiled upon me sweetly and sadly with the fateful smile of those who feel that they must die. One morning... I was seated at her bedside and breakfasting from a little table placed close at hand, so that I might not be obliged to leave her for a single instant. In the act of cutting some fruit, I accidentally inflicted a rather deep gash on my finger. The blood immediately gushed forth in a purple jet, and a few drops spurted upon Claremont. Her eyes flashed, her face suddenly assumed an expression of savage and ferocious joy, such as I had never before observed in her. She leaped out of the bed with animal agility, the agility as it were of an ape or a cat, and sprang upon my wound, which she commenced to suck with an air of unutterable pleasure. She swallowed the blood in little mouthfuls, slowly and carefully, like a connoisseur tasting a wine. Gradually, her eyelids half closed, and the pupils of her green eyes became oblong instead of round. From time to time she would pause in order to kiss my hand. Then she would recommence to press her lips to the lips of the wound in order to coax forth a few more ruddy drops. When she found that the blood would no longer come, she arose with eyes liquid and brilliant, rosier than a May dawn, her face full and fresh, her hand 
warm and moist, and fine more beautiful than ever, and the most perfect health. I shall not die, I shall not die, she cried, clinging to my neck, half mad with joy. I can love thee yet for a long time. My life is thine, and all that is of me comes from thee. A few drops of thy rich and noble blood, more precious and more potent than all the elixirs of the earth, have given me back life. That is a wonderful reading. She is in rapturous love. I'm just guessing here, but I sense a sexual undertone. Maybe. There might be a little hint There might that. be. I don't know. It's a little vague. I want a few drops. <laughs> He's accidentally spurting out on Claremont, but then she... She's lapping it up. Lapping it like up. Like a cat or an ape. Until there's no more to there's be no had, but she's totally happy. <laughs> so that is an amazing thing to read from 1836. One thing that is, is interesting about this and also The Vampire Bride and many other things that I've I found is you have... As we discussed, you know, with Lord Ruthven, the male vampire aristocrat is essentially an aristocrat with teeth and yeah, and, and he does what he wants. He takes over. He doesn't love the women that he's taking. He just takes them because he feels like he can. And then in these stories, when it's the female vampire, she is in love with her victim. Yes, because when you turn an aristocrat into a vampire, you're not really changing, but if you suddenly give a woman immortality and super strength, what is that? Like, what does she do with that now? Because all of a sudden she has power. So does she go around destroying things or does she totally love you even though you're not a very interesting person? The hero of Claremont, the the, the bridegroom in The Vampire Bride are not especially interesting men. You know, but you have these super women just utterly in love with them. In love with you. Yeah. And so it's this fantasy, I think. But also it has a little element of the forbidden fruit because he's a priest. So even though he may not be interesting, he is definitely a challenge yes. to still away. That's, That's true. And more of an intellectual kind of challenge, right? It's not like a physical challenge. They've got to get over his beliefs. That's a very good point. And I love how he romanticizes. Uh, I mean, it's already so beautiful and, and poetic. It doesn't have gruesomeness to it. But even in the blood, it's purple. And he compares it to a wine connoisseur. So it all feels like not red, bloody, gory stuff. It's classy. Mm-hmm. It's classy blood. <laughs> it's a fine yeah. <laughs> vintage blood. <laughs> That's very, very right. We're going to uh, jump ahead now to 1872. And one of the more familiar names in vampire lore, Carmilla, by Sheridan Le Fanu, who was uh, an Anglo-Irish writer. We're going to read an excerpt from this novel. In this case, Laura, the narrator, is a part English young woman who lives with her widowed father and some servants in a big house in Styria, which no longer exists, but it's, a, it's Central Europe. And it's probably set around the 1850s. They meet a young woman named Carmilla, who is shy and mysterious and she's living with them and she really pays a lot of attention to Laura and is sometimes, you know, like kissing her and stroking her hair. And Laura is kind of saying, I don't, what are you doing? I understand this. <laughs> and so this is a part where Laura is describing the strange illness that she begins to fall into. A small thing, uh, she refers at one point to the peasants in their fear of the upir, which is another way of saying vampire. But they're dying after just a a few days, whereas she's not dying after just a few days, which leads you to believe that there seem to be some things going on beyond the castle. You know, someone is feeding on the peasants. Right. But uh, who knows what what, what that's all about. (laughs) Now Maddie will read Carmela from 1872. For some nights I slept profoundly, but still every morning I felt the same lassitude and languor weighed upon me all day. I felt myself a changed girl. A strange melancholy was stealing over me, a melancholy that I would not have interrupted. Dim thoughts of death began to open. 
and an idea that I was slowly sinking took gentle and somehow not unwelcome possession of me. If it was sad, the tone of mind which this induced was also sweet. Carmilla became more devoted to me than ever, and her strange paroxysms of languid adoration more frequent. She used to gloat on me with increasing ardor the more my strength and spirits waned. This always shocked me, like a momentary glare of insanity. Without knowing it, I was now in a pretty advanced stage of the strangest illness under which mortal ever suffered. Certain vague and strange sensations visited me in my sleep. The prevailing one was of that pleasant, peculiar cold thrill which we feel in bathing when we move against the current of a river. This was soon accompanied by dreams that seemed interminable. They were so vague that I could never recollect their scenery and persons or any one connected portion of their action. But they left an awful impression, a sense of exhaustion, as if I had passed through a long period of great mental exertion and danger. After all these dreams, there remained on waking a remembrance of having been in a place very nearly dark, and of having spoken to people whom I could not see, and especially of one clear voice, of a female's, very deep, that spoke as if at a distance, slowly and producing always the same sensation of indescribable solemnity and fear. Sometimes there came a sensation as if a hand was drawn softly across my cheek and neck. Sometimes it was as if warm lips kissed me, and longer and more lovingly as they reached my throat. But there the caress fixed itself. My heart beat faster, my breathing rose and fell rapidly and full-drawn, a sobbing that rose into a sense of strangulation and turned into a dreadful convulsion in which my senses left me and I became unconscious. I had grown pale. My eyes were dilated and darkened underneath and the languor which I had long felt began to display itself in my countenance. My father asked me often whether I was ill, but with an obstinacy which now seems to me unaccountable, I persisted in assuring him that I was quite well. In a sense, this was true. I had no pain. I could not complain of bodily derangement. It could not be that terrible complaint which the peasants called the opir, for I had now been suffering for three weeks, and they were seldom ill for much more than three days when death put an end to their miseries. One night, instead of the voice I was accustomed to hear in the dark, I heard one, sweet and tender, and at the same time terrible, which said, Your mother warns you to beware of the assassin. And at the same time a light unexpectedly sprang up, and I saw Carmilla standing near the foot of my bed in her white nightdress bathed, from her chin to her feet, in one great stain of blood. Well, that is more confusing to me. (laughs) There's two women involved, so obviously there's a sexual thing going on there. It's interesting because now we're getting into the late 19th century. And so you have Carmilla as an almost tragic figure, sort of in love with Laura. Yes. Seeming to be extremely weak and yet showing these flashes of tremendous power and, and animal-like power. At the end, she's dealt with quite, uh, quite harshly. Oh. Oh, yeah. But you see from this why Carmilla is, is sort of a, a, a lesbian icon. Yes. And it's, it's interesting because even now, you know, there will be critics who say, well, no, it's not lesbianism. It's uh, just a, it's something. It's a great female friendship. It's like, well, okay, yeah. They never talk to any gay people, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> if you switch the gender roles, it would probably, without a doubt, they would say, oh, yes, that's homosexuality. Right. right. But if with they ladies, they're like, it's not less. <laughs> it is. Right, and if Carmilla were a man, then clearly. It's love. Right, yeah. but staring you in the face. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I feel like it is, but you can also say that the other stuff is there, too. Or is not there. It's all there. It's the example of what was happening at the very beginning of the show with uh, Varney. That woman, whose name is Flora, is not having a good time at all 
when Varney is coming in and grabbing her by the hair and right. doing all this. Whereas Laura is like, oh. She's no. seduced. She's being seduced. And it's like, and her dad, right? The patriarchy is saying, uh, are you okay there? No, I'm fine. She's fine. Everything's, right. Everything's great. And throughout it, every time she describes something, there's an and, and it's sweet and terrible. So she's always softening the blow. <laughs> right. And she's of two minds. Of you know, two minds. She is liking it and terrified by it, which mm-hmm. sex is very scary and mm-hmm. wonderful yeah. and the whole idea of the gay culture identifying with vampires I knew about the homoerotic male stuff I didn't actually realize that there was the lesbian in that too because the men are in this time it's illegal they could die you know in prison and so they have to sneak around in the dark at night to meet someone and again that's kind of a stranger we were talking about how the male is not in love with the person that they're sucking their blood but the women do fall in love with and try to keep them alive yes that's right Carmilla is not killing Laura in three days it's like I'm going to just keep you as long as I possibly can because you know you're you're my special one yeah all right so now we are going to move ahead this is several excerpts from a a story called Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker. This was published in 1914, and no one quite knows what this story is. Dracula was published in 1897. And if you remember the first couple of chapters, and similar to most of the movies, you have a real estate agent from London coming out to essentially Transylvania to conduct a real estate deal for Dracula in his castle. As you do. As you do. (laughs) Well, because it's the 1890s and you can't do everything over the internet. This story is an unnamed narrator who may or may not be Jonathan Harker, or Mm. maybe this is the guy who was sent before Jonathan Harker and something didn't work out. He is on his way to see Count Dracula. He gets lost in a storm and comes up against a mysterious tomb. And then... Other things happen. He is in Munich heading towards Transylvania. Okay. And along the way, he says, "Uh, you know, I don't have to meet uh, Count Dracula for a couple of days. I'm going to do a little sightseeing. And he ends up just like running alone in darkness and snow and looking for shelter and terrified of things. And he also realizes it's a Valpurgis night, which is the end of May when all the forces of evil come out uh, of their tombs. It's like It's like an early but much scarier version of Halloween in Central Europe. Oh, and by the way, Dracula's Guest allegedly was an early chapter that was taken out of the Dracula novel and then turned into a short story by Bram Stoker. Exactly how it came to be is a little unclear. It's almost like an alternate universe version of the beginning of Dracula. Excellent. And the reason why we have read the stories that we have up until this point is because it is the evolution of the origin stories of vampire coming to the Bram Stoker, yes. which is the most famous one. Right. Dracula was the culmination of a lot of themes that were coming together for over a century. And in terms of one of the things we were talking about, about aristocracy, back to Carmilla. So Carmilla is eating the peasants, but Laura is like well-born. And Carmilla, of course, as we find out later, is a countess. So Bram Stoker was originally going to call his character Count Vampire. I'm so glad he didn't. He's so glad he didn't. He changed it to Dracula, but it was always going to be Count something. something. Because, of course, it was going to be a count. There was no question about that. Right. Yes. They need to have that power in order to do whatever they want. Whatever they want. Because yeah. you can travel, you have money, you can, you know, people will obey you as you'll, yeah. as you'll see. And now, The Apex, an excerpt from Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker. Suddenly the moonlight broke through the clouds, showing me that I was in a graveyard, and that the square object before me was a great massive tomb of marble, as white as the snow that lay on and all around it. I walked around it and read over the Doric door in German, Countess Dolingen of Graz, in Styria, sought and found death, 1801. On the top of the tomb... Seemingly driven through the solid marble, for the structure was composed of a few vast blocks of stone, was a great iron spike or stake. On going to the back, I saw graven in great Russian letters, The dead travel fast. 
As I leaned against the door, it moved slightly and opened inward. I was about to enter when there came a flash of forked lightning that lit up the whole expanse of the heavens. In the instant, as I am a living man, I saw as my eyes turned into the darkness of the tomb a beautiful woman with rounded cheeks and red lips, seemingly sleeping on a bier. As the thunder broke overhead, I was grasped as if by a hand of a giant and hurled out into the storm. The whole thing was so sudden that before I could realize the shock, moral as well as physical, I found the hailstones beating me down. At the same time, I had a strange, dominating feeling that I was not alone. I looked towards the tomb, just before there came another blinding flash, which seemed to strike the iron stake that surmounted the tomb and to pour through to the earth, blasting and crumbling the marble as if in a burst of flames. The dead woman rose for a moment of agony while she was lapping in the flame, and her bitter scream of pain was drowned in the thunder crash. The last thing I heard was the mingling of a dreadful sound, as again I was seized by the giant grasp and dragged away, while the hailstones beat on me and the air around me seemed reverberate with the howling of wolves. The last sight that I remember was a vague white moving mass, as if all the graves around me had sent out the phantoms of their dead and that they were closing in on me through the white cloudiness of the driving hail. For a time, I remember nothing but slowly my senses returned. Some heavy weight on my chest made it difficult for me to breathe. I felt a warm rasping at my throat. Then came a consciousness of the awful truth which chilled me to the heart and sent the blood surging up through my brain. Through my eyelashes, I saw above me the two great flaming eyes of a gigantic wolf, its sharp white teeth gleaming in the gaping red mouth, and I could feel its hot breath, fierce and acrid upon me. For another spell of time, I remember no more. Then I became conscious of a low growl, followed by a yelp, renewed again and again. Then seemingly very far away, I heard a hello. Hello! As if many voices calling in unison. Then all at once, from behind the trees, there came a trot, a troop of horsemen bearing torches. The wolf rose from my breast and made for the cemetery. Two or three of the soldiers jumped from their horses and knelt beside me. One of them raised my head and placed his hand over my heart. Good news, comrades, he cried. His heart still beats. Lights and shadows were moving among the trees, and I heard men call to one another. We should never have found him but for the yelping of the wolf. To the north, a red streak of sunlight was reflected like a path of blood over the waste of snow. The officer was telling the men to say nothing of what they had seen, except that they found an English stranger guarded by a large dog. Dog? That was no dog, cut in the man who had exhibited such fear. I think I know a wolf when I see one. The young officer answered calmly. I said, dog. I warmly thanked him and his brave comrades for saving me. But how did you know I was lost, I asked. He answered, I had this telegram from the boyar, whose guest you are. He took from his pocket a telegram, which he handed to me, and I read, Be careful of my guest. His safety is most precious to me. Should aught happen to him, or if he be miss, spare nothing to find him and ensure his safety. He is English and therefore adventurous. There are often dangers from snow and wolves and night. Lose not a moment if you suspect harm to him. I answer your zeal with my fortune. Dracula. That's good. So in this, you see that Dracula is actually the secret protector in this. Because who do we think the wolf is? Because clearly it's not an ordinary wolf. The wolf is Dracula. Oh, so he's a protector and the attacker? Well, at this point, what does Dracula need? He needs this real estate deal done. It's like... Oh, my uh, real estate agent from England is going off on a little sightseeing tour. Uh-oh, he's going into that graveyard where that undead vampire lady I know of is. I better go uh, check him out. 
can't let him know I'm a vampire, of course. So I'll just pull him out of there, possibly bring down some lightning to destroy the uh, vampire woman, and then sit on his chest as a giant wolf to keep him there and howl to alert the soldiers. And then I'm getting out of there, and good thing I also sent the telegram ahead of time to have them go look. He multitasks. He's a multitasker. He's a multitasker. Super vampire. He's a super vampire, yes. I felt like Dracula sent the wolf to find him as opposed to being him. You could be right. It just seemed like it would be one of his minions that he could disperse to like do his dirty work. You know. Oh, that's very clever. Yes, maybe you, yeah. could, you could absolutely be right about that. He's mm-hmm. kind of the Voldemort of his day. Dracula. Yes, yes. He has power over uh, the, the lower animals and bats and wolves and things, according to, to, to Bram Stoker. And so this story is the culmination of all of the other stories, or is it It's the culmination in, in, in the Vampire's First Blood, Volumes 1 and 2. It's the last story, because at this point, we're up to Dracula. Oh, and by the way, at the same time, you also see how the lady vampire has gone from, shall we say, the full-blooded presentations <laughs> of people like Claremont or Carmilla, and it's this undead person vaguely seen and then we blow her up yeah it seems a little it's like a demonish thing and then and has no personality no, no personality whatsoever and if you think about dracula he has three identical you know women in his uh, castle who wait for him to bring dinner home you know mina the main character is the most fascinating character in the book she's the heroine but her friend lucy once lucy becomes a vampire she's you know going after children and just has to be totally destroyed and she has really nothing else to say something happened by the end of the 19th century and the victorian era the the power of the female vampire has been totally vitiated right ironically it was just at that time that the image of the vampire as a non-supernatural woman who's just after guys pocketbooks who have become the theta barra type you know the vamp wow became very popular and so Vampires didn't really become men so much again until after the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula, which made such an impression that once again a vampire was, you know, a guy with slicked back hair and a cape and an accent. Yeah, wow. That's really a fascinating evolution. Yes. Yeah. I'm wondering in your research if there was ever a monster female vampire. I would say that to some writers, the idea of a sexually voracious woman would be monstrous. And Ooh. so that can be seen as, as something horrifying. Right. And that's the evolution here, where they're suddenly taken away their power, and now they're kind of plot devices. To, yes. Yeah. I think so. It also <laughs> seems like in when it would first start in the origins, it's more basic. It's good versus evil, right? So the monster mm-hmm. is bad, and, and so it makes it more simplistic. It seems more interesting as uh, the writers evolve, and the character becomes seductive, good-looking, and then there's a twist in the writing that it becomes bad for you. It looks so good, so bad for you. Right, exactly. Originally it was like, don't go there, there are vampires out there. You know, that's it. But then when the vampire is, you know, he's a lord or something, and he's like your friend. There's a lure. There's the yes. power. You're attracted to the power. And then there's the question of, is your soul in danger? And you could make a point that in the early, mid-20th century... The idea of the vampire as a foreigner with mind control powers was also something that you had to resist. You know, it was, it was Dracula's control over you. Ironically, of course, by the 20th century, you're fighting it with these Christian iconographies. So it's like, if vampires exist, then God must also exist. And so we must use the yeah. power of God to fight. It's also Ooh. interesting, just very quickly, in the English stories, again and again you run into, I say, it seems as though he rises from uh, the coffin at night and does drain blood and he seems to be able to climb walls. What are you saying? I'm saying he might just be, no, that's ridiculous. No, no, he could be a vampire. No, I don't think so. Whereas the Catholic stories, stories written by Catholics, it's like, you know something, he's a vampire. Fine. I totally believe you. <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting my holy water and the cross. Right. They have something to fight it with. Constantly. Yes, I mean, much of, much of Dracula is like people saying to everyone, okay, Dracula is a vampire. He's in London. No, that's just ridiculous. No, I'm serious. <laughs> and then this. you tell a priest and they grab their holy water. You're right. But because England and America were essentially Protestant countries, you didn't have this belief. 
Catholics don't take chances. <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed. If we think there's a suspicion of evil, we're on, we're get, on that, it. Get that holy water. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been so much fun, James. And I wanted to again thank you both, Joey Rich and Maddie Goff, for the wonderful readings you did. Of course. Uh, oh, it's great. It's enlightening. Like I learned a lot. Yeah, yeah it was I loved lovely. It. I'd also like to thank my co producer, Nicole Corbin. The two anthologies are Vampires, First Blood. There's the volume one, which is... The Vampire Lords, and volume two, The Vampire Ladies. That's oh. right. You can pick those up on Amazon. See, there's alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> this is Autumn Door. Thank you for listening, and happy Halloween. Yeah. <laughs>